Right now we want to have a word of prayer before we get started, so I invite you to, uh, to uh, bow with me and let's, let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you, Father, for uh, your love for us and uh, sending your son Jesus to this earth and, and uh, making a way of escape uh, for us from a life of sin and uh, giving us eternal life. Uh, uh, through his merits and uh, we thank you so very very much for that love that uh, you you show to us each and every moment and father we pray for the holy spirit to be with us now as we get back into our study of prophecy uh, into these end time messages the last messages of warning to the world before jesus is to to come in the clouds and so we pray for the holy spirit to guide us and direct us help us to have right understanding to have discernment as to what the truth is. These are solemn truths uh, that bear out with scrutiny and uh, uh, comparing history and uh, your word together. And so uh, we want to understand these things so that we can share that, that truth that we learn here with others. And so we all can be prepared. We thank you for Jesus and uh, for hearing this prayer. We ask it in his blessed name. Amen. The last time we learned in our study of the first angel's message, we learned that Revelation 14 describes three angels with messages for the world. It was to separate, you see, the church of Christ from the corrupting influence of the world that the first angel's message was given. Did the first message do its work? Well, yes, it did. There was indeed a separation that took place and the second angel now makes a solemn proclamation that goes along with the first angel's message. And so let's see what this second message is. Uh, we want to discover what it means because it, it goes along with uh, what we learned last time we were together. Question number one, what followed the first angel and his message? We go to Revelation chapter 14 and in, in particular we want to look at verses 6 to 8. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And so what followed the first angel and his message? Well, we see a second angel with another message. And that message accompanies the first message. Now I say that because the Greek word for followed is akolutheia, which means to be in the same way with, or to accompany, or as translated here, to follow. Uh, also, some Greek manuscripts re read a second angel instead of another angel. But the second angel's message accompanies the first, and that's what I want you to understand. It accompanies the first angel's message. The first angel continues his ministry, you see, when the second angel joins him. The second angel doesn't do away with the first angel, or the first angel doesn't stop, and then the second angel does his ministry. It accompanies him. 
And in this sense, the second angel's message accompanies him. And, and as stated previously, these messages were first preached in the summer of 1844 uh, by Adventists. And you can go into your uh, uh, history and look at uh, encyclopedias or do Google search or whatever on the Great Advent Awakening. And you can read up about the history of this movement from about 1830s, 18, late 1820s on up to 1844. And uh, it was called the, the Great Admin Awakening. Question number two. What difference is there in the way the second angel gives his message as compared to the first and third angels? Now this may be, uh, you may not have caught it the first time we read through, read through it, but let's look at it again. Let's go to Revelation 14 and let's look at the first and second and third angels' messages. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, okay? So this first angel is saying with a loud voice, he's saying, fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And then here's the second angel, verse eight. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So the first angel said, saying with a loud voice. That's what it said about the first angel. Here it says the second angel is saying. Now let's read the third, verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, and receive his mark in his forehead, or in his hand. So, what is the answer? What difference is there in the way the second angel gives his messages compared to the first and third angels? Well, the first and third angels' messages are proclaimed, we read there, with a loud voice, yet the second angel's message isn't given with a loud voice at this time, meaning that not, not really all heard the second angel's message. Actually, not all heard the first angel's message or made a decision on the first angel's message. And so they didn't hear it, see it was more localized. It was directed mainly uh, to the United States, which leads to question three. Why isn't the second angel's message proclaimed with a loud voice? Well, let's go to Revelation chapter 18 and let's look at verses one and two. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Where have we heard that before? That was the second angel's message of Revelation 14, wasn't it? But here we're in Revelation 18. And it says, he, he's cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Why isn't the second angel's message proclaimed with a loud voice? Well, when the, first, when the message was first given, it was more localized to the United States, you see. It wasn't all around the world. There was pockets uh, in places around the world where these messages were given, but, it, but mainly it was localized to the United States. Hence, the rejection of the first angel's message didn't reach its complete fulfillment as it was primarily given in the United States. And so there are still some Protestant churches that had not heard the news of the judgment, had not had an opportunity to hear it, and didn't reject it, see. But those churches in the United States had. 
Let me read this to you. It's from The Great Controversy, page 389. The second angel's message of Revelation 14 was first preached in the summer of 1844, and it then had a more direct application to the churches of the United States. It did what? It had a more direct application to the churches of where? The United States, where the warning of the judgment, that's the first angel's message, had been most widely proclaimed and most generally rejected, and where the declension in the churches had been most rapid. But the message of the second angel did not reach its complete fulfillment in 1844. The churches then experienced a moral fall in consequence of the refusal of the light of the Advent message. That's the first angel's message. But that fall was not complete as they have continued to reject the special truths for this time, they have fallen lower and lower. Not yet, however, can it be said that Babylon is fallen because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. She has not yet made all nations do this. The spirit of world-conforming and indifference to the testing truths for our time exists and has been gaining ground in churches of the Protestant faith in all the countries of Christendom. And these churches are included in the solemn and terrible denunciation of the second angel. But the work of apostasy has not yet reached its culmination. It hasn't reached its culmination yet, see. And so uh, the second angel's message where he's saying it, not saying it with a loud voice, they hadn't fallen Uh, had that moral fall yet. It was more of a localized message at that time. But when you get to Revelation 18, it's worldwide then. And it's repeated with a loud voice, a mighty and strong voice, we read. Um, And because it's fall, it has fallen further than when the message was first given. Here's another one from Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 116. Selected Messages, Volume 2. Page 116, thus the substance of the second angel's message is again given to the world by that other angel, that angel there in Revelation 18, who lightens the earth with his glory. These messages all blend in one to come before the people in the closing days of this earth's history. So we see when the three angels' messages are given, the first angel's message is given with a loud voice. It speaks about... Uh, of the everlasting gospel. It talks about coming back to worship the true God and it announces the time of the judgment and it went beyond the United States and went worldwide. The second angel's message about Babylon fallen had to do with mainly with the rejection, those churches that rejected the first angel's message and it wasn't worldwide. It was mainly limited to the United States uh, and still yet the third angel's messages with a loud voice going to the world. And so at that particular time in 1844, um, it was just more localized to the United States, as we've read. And, and, uh, uh, but then it is given later on as the churches have gotten worse in rejecting the first angel's message. And I'll tell you, when you reject one, because they accompany each other, when you reject the first angel's message, you've, by default, essentially rejected the second and third. Let's go to uh, question number four. What was the message 
the second angel was proclaiming. Let's go back to Revelation 14, verse 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the earth of her fornication. What was the, what was the message? What's, what's the angel saying? Saying Babylon is fallen, right? And so with such an important message, in fact, it's so important uh, that it is repeated with a mighty voice that we read in chapter 18, we really want to make absolutely sure who Babylon is because you may be in Babylon and not even know it. And it's no disgrace to be in Babylon without knowing it. In fact, God has many people in Babylon, but he is calling them out of Babylon and into his family, into the truth and into his family. So the message the second angel was proclaiming is that Babylon has fallen. Question number five, what is the term Babylon derived from and what does it mean? Well, we'll go back, we'll go back to Genesis to begin with. It talks about uh, Babylon, uh, Babel in essence. We go to Genesis chapter 10 and verse 8 says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Notice verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom, the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom, was Babel. And Erech, and Akkad, and Calneh, and the land of Shinar. And so we find here the first mention of Babel. Uh, goes clear back to Nimrod. Okay. And this is after the flood, remember. Now let's go to Genesis 11. And we get, to, we get here where it's talking about uh, the building of the Tower of Babel. You remember? And uh, talking about building up the, the Tower of Babel because they, they believed that it, they didn't believe that it was the God of heaven who flooded the earth. And even if they did believe that it was the God of heaven, they were going to build this tower up that was so high that if God flooded the earth, they would still go to the top floor, you see, and they would survive it. But a lot of them were into the sciences, like just like today. And they, they would explain the flood away by, uh, by suggesting, oh, these are natural disasters and it was a natural disaster and, and such. So we can prevent that from happening, or at least we can, we can survive it if it ever were to happen again, you know, which is very interesting because didn't God make a promise that he wouldn't flood the earth again? So you see, they didn't, even, they didn't believe God. See, God put the bow in the sky and we see it even today. And every time I see a rainbow... I say, God, there's God's promise. God is still on the throne and he's still uh, holding to his promise to us. So you can trust God and you can trust his promises. And so in Genesis 11, if you go down to verse, oh, let's see here. Verse 6 says, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them. This is talking about building this tower, which they, they have imagined to do. And verse 7, Go to, let us go down there, confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth. And they left 
off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel. Because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. From thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. And so we see that Babel began here with Nimrod. Then Nimrod got the people together and uh, uh, they decided to build this tower. And then God confounded the language uh, to keep them from continuing what they were doing and uh, scattered them around the world. Now, People will say, well, that's Babel. That doesn't say Babylon, right? Well, in Babylonian, the language, the Chaldean language, the name Babelu, and that in English it's translated as Babel or Babylon. See, in Chaldean it was Babelu, which meant gate of the gods. But the Hebrews, they derogatorily associated it with Baalol. And that's a word in their language meaning to confuse by mixing, see. The rulers of Babylon, well, they doubtless called their city the gate of the gods in the sense that they chose to think of it as as the place where the gods came to to consort with men, you know, to order the affairs of all the earth. Nimrod was considered at one time a god, see. And so his descendant, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he dedicated, when he became the king of Babylon, uh, he dedicated the great Ishtar gate to the goddess Ishtar. Well, Ishtar is where we get uh, the word Easter in our language. It's the same false god, Easter. And one of the eight gate of the gods, they are all around the city of Babylon, it was a wonder of the world, this city. It had eight gates, big brass gates, a lot of them in one... Uh, this particular one was made of inlaid gold, and and uh, um, most of the gates were were made uh, with uh, well, well, with different things, but overlaid with gold because it was a golden kingdom. See, and uh, uh, but this this gate of the gods um, of Ishtar it was the main entrance into Babylon, and the gate was a is actually was a double gate. See, and it was the starting point for what they called the half-mile professional way to the temple of Marduk, sun god. It's the very gate which the Jewish captives had to pass through, including Daniel and Ezekiel. Um, Revelation, when we study Revelation, which we're doing, it uses Babylon as the Hebrews did. It uses that meaning. Babylon means to confuse by mixing, such as mixing truth with error. And so our question was, what is the term Babylon derived from? It's derived from the word Babel. And what does it mean? It means to, uh, to, to confuse by mixing, see. So started with Nimrod, who originally built Babylon. Um, to the Babylonians, you know, uh, the, da- the name meant gate, gate of the gods or gateway to gods or gateway to heaven, um, and, but the Hebrews it means to confuse by mixing. Question number six. Is the second angel of Revelation 14 speaking of the literal city of Babylon founded by Nimrod and ruled also by Nebuchadnezzar? <coughs> well, in Daniel chapter five, uh, we read about the, the, the uh, instance where Belshazzar, who, who was 
uh, ruling Babylon at that particular time. I think he was like a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, uh, they were being besieged, you see, by the Medes and the Persians. But Babylon was built so well that they, they were self-sustaining inside. They had hanging gardens. They had the river Euphrates that flowed through the center of the city and, and, and was uh, closed off on each side of the city by huge uh, brass gates uh, that the river would flow through. They were more like um, you know bars where the river would could get get through the these gates, and uh, they could withstand a siege. Uh, some estimates I read was up to twenty five years they could withstand a siege. So they're high and lifted up. They don't care that the Medes and Persians are out there sweating to death out there outside. So here, Belshazzar, he's having a feast, and, and it was a it was a yearly type feast. I can't remember exactly right now off the top of my head what the feast was to one of the false gods, and he he remembered that the that uh, his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had brought all these vessels from Jerusalem from the temple and had them in storage. So he had them sent for, and they drank wine. Uh, from those vessels, mocked God about it. And you remember the story, the handwriting on the wall. And, and so they go and they get, um, they get Daniel to uh, look at this writing and interpret it for him. And he says, you know, many, many tekel kufarsin. He told him exactly what it means. Your weight in the balance is found wanting. Thy kingdom is divided, given to the Medes and the Persians. And then uh, <clears throat> he was... Uh, Belshazzar was slain that night and the Medes and the Persians took over uh, the kingdom. So when we ask about, is this the the second angel talking about the literal city of Babylon? Well, in lieu of what Daniel's telling us, this history in Daniel 5, that the king of Babylon was overthrown. We read about it when we've studied Daniel chapter 2. You study uh, into Daniel 7, you know, the different kingdoms, the secession of kingdoms. We get in Daniel 8 and such. Uh, you got to say, well, that can't be the kingdom that's being spoken of. But Isaiah even talks about it. Isaiah 13, verse 19 says, In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Is Sodom and Gomorrah still around? <laughs> no, it's not. Um, he goes on, he says, It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there, and the wild beasts of the islands shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant palaces, and her time is near to come, and her day shall not be prolonged. Then if you go to Jeremiah 15, verse 13, it says, Because of the wrath of the Lord, it shall not be inhabited, but it shall be wholly desolate. Everyone that goeth by Babylon shall be astonished and hiss at her plagues. So by God's word, and you look back in history, once Babylon was uh, defeated there by the Medes and Persians, uh, it uh, essentially left history. So, you know, is the second angel 
Speaking of the literal city of Babylon, that you know, that one founded by Nimrod and ruled by Nebuchadnezzar and here Belshazzar? No. It was overthrown by the Medes and Persians to never be built again as a literal kingdom, friends, on this earth. And you know, in our recent history, you know, you had Saddam Hussein, and uh, that was one of his goals, was he was going to rebuild um, he was going to rebuild Babylon. Where is Saddam Hussein now? Did he rebuild Babylon? No. He's dead in the grave, isn't he? There's no Babylon again. And it's interesting to note that toward the close of the first century AD, even as literal Babylon lay desolate, the Christians were referring to the city and empire of Rome by the cryptic title of Babylon. They did that to avoid persecution. It was kind of like a code name, so to speak. And we need to take note of that because it it begins to make more sense when we study some of these things. Even Peter uses the term Babylon as a veiled reference to Rome in 1 Peter 5 and verse 13. In fact, one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, who lived at the close of the second century, specifically He declares that the term Babylon in the book of Revelation refers to the capital city of imperial Rome. History and the scriptures make it very clear that the second angel's message, though friends, is not speaking about the literal city of Babylon, uh, frankly, because it no longer exists. So it must be a symbolic term. When it talks about Babylon is fallen, is fallen, what is Babylon? It's a symbolic term. Which leads to question seven. Who does Babylon symbolically represent? Let's go back to Revelation, this time chapter 17. And we're going to read the first six verses. Revelation 17, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth <coughs> excuse me, have committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth have made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scar, scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And if you go down to verse 18, it says, And cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? So it's talking about Babylon here, and then it's talking about a great city. Okay? Well, when Nimrod built it, it was a city. It began with city, and then it was his kingdom, see? Now, the answer to our question, who does Babylon symbolically represent? It represents an apostate uh, church from Rome. And the Bible says 
that the woman is, it describes this woman, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, right? And it, and it says that this woman is that great city. What does the second angel call that great city? It says Babylon. Okay, And even here, Babylon the Great, Babylon. Babylon here is represented as a woman, a figure which is used in the scriptures as the symbol of a church. A virtuous woman represents a pure church, a vile woman an apostate church. And so here you have a what would be considered a vile woman. She's a harlot and the mother of harlots. And it's that great city. And we've seen um, where Peter, for example, he used Babylon as a term to in reference to Rome. And so what does Babylon uh, symbolically represent? A fallen church from Rome. Fallen apostate church. Question number eight. To what does God liken his faithful people? So, unpure, vile woman is an apostate church. A virtuous woman represents a pure church. And what does God liken his faithful people to? Isaiah 51 and verse 16 says, And I have put my words in thy mouth, and I have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand. Then I plant the heavens, and lay the foundations of the earth, and say unto Zion, Thou art my people. So he says Zion is his people. And then if you go to Jeremiah 6 verse 2, he says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. So God likens his faithful people to a delicate and comely woman. Now, Webster's Dictionary, the 1828 edition, defines comely as This is how they define it. Properly, becoming, suitable, whence, handsome, graceful, applied to person or form. It denotes symmetry. I like this part. It denotes symmetry or due proportion, but it expresses less than beautiful or elegant. So it isn't the extreme, right? It's a a suitable, it's a becoming uh, woman. And that's what it means, a delicate and, and a suitable, becoming, handsome woman. Let's go to question number nine. What kind of union does the Bible use to represent the relation that exists between Christ and his church? What kind of union? So we see that the, the symbol of a woman represents a lot in Bible prophecy, doesn't it? You know, you have a pure woman representing God's people, God's church, you have a vile woman representing the, the uh, um, church of Antichrist. Okay? And so, what kind of union does the Bible use to represent the relationship between Christ and, and His people? Jeremiah 3 and verse 14, he says, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven two, he says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chest virgin to Christ. And so the close relation of the church to Christ is represented under the figure of marriage. And the devil doesn't like that, does he? 
There's an attack on the family unit. You know, the, the family unit that God created there in, in, uh, uh, in Eden, it was to teach us something about the character of God and about our relationship between God and uh, His people. And that's under attack. And, and that's one reason why marriage is under attack. See, anything the devil can do to disfigure or, or in, in a way defame the image of God. Somehow mar the image of God and his institutions. He's going to do it. Yeah, but we see here that the kind of union the Bible talks about when it talks about that relationship between Christ and his church, he talks about it in terms of a marriage. The Lord joined his people to himself by a solemn covenant, you see. He promised to be their God and they pledged themselves to be his and his alone. And that's what we do when we get married, isn't it? We stand before God, the, husband, the, the man and the woman, and they vow to each other before God and make a covenant with God as their witness that they will be joined together. Question number 10. How does God view his chosen people when they turn their backs on him? So when, when they're together with God, they're, they're keeping the covenant that they've made. It's a marriage, but, but what happens when they turn their backs on him? Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 15 says, But thou didst trust in thine own beauty and platest the harlot because of thy renown and pourest out thy fornications on everyone that passed by his it was, etc. So he says you played the harlot. When his people turned their backs on God, they went into apostasy. He's saying you, you in essence, are joining yourself with someone else that's what a harlot does. Look at verse 32. But as a wife that committeth adultery, which taketh strangers instead of her husband, they give gifts to all whores, but thou givest thy gifts to all thy lovers and hirest them that they may come unto thee on every side for thy whoredom. So here he's talking about when, when we go into apostasy, when he has his people go into apostasy, they turn their back on him. They were married, right? But now he says, no, you're playing the harlot. You're being a whore. The Old Testament prophets often compare apostate Israel, which actually, sad to say, repeatedly went a whoring after heathen gods, you know, but they compare it to an adulterous woman or a harlot. So we're kind of defining terms a little bit here as we get in and we're looking at the second angel's message here um, about Babylon. And we're seeing that Babylon is this harlot. And in, in the Bible... When God's people went into apostasy, they were considered a harlot. Okay? What else is revealed about this woman or church called Babylon? Let's go back to Revelation 17. Let's read this again, verses 5 and 6. And upon her forehead was a name written, what? Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Well, we find that this woman or this church called Babylon is a persecuting church. It persecutes God's people. And not only that, it has offspring. Okay, This church has offspring that's called harlot daughters. And so... Babylon 
is said to be a harlot. And that's symbolic of an apostate church. And it is that great city, remember we read, which refers to Rome. And the prophet here beheld her drunken with the blood of saints and martyrs. The Babylon thus described represents papal Rome. And as we've been studying the books of Daniel and the Revelation, this isn't a real, shouldn't be a real surprise to us. But it represents papal Rome, that apostate church which has so cruelly persecuted the followers of Christ. Babylon is also said to be what? The mother of harlots, right? Her daughters must symbolize churches that then they, what do they do? They cling to her doctrines and her traditions and they follow her example of sacrificing the truth and the approval of God in order to form an unlawful alliance with the world. And we read with the kings of the earth, saying with the world. The message of Revelation 14, announcing the fall of Babylon, must apply, friends. Here's a principle for you. Here's something to put in the back of your mind when you talk about Babylon. It must apply to religious bodies that were once pure, but have become corrupt. They've apostatized. Okay? And since this message follows the warning of the judgment, that was the first angel's message, which must be given after 1798. That was the, the time of the end. That's when the time of the end began. You know, Since this message follows that warning, it cannot therefore refer directly to the Roman Catholic Church or Papal Rome. Not directly. For that church, it's been in a fallen condition for many centuries. Hence, you know, the Protestant Reformation. <laughs> and then, of course, the deadly wound in 1798. Furthermore, in the 18th chapter of Revelation, in a message which is still yet future, the people of God are called upon to come out of Babylon. And according to this scripture, many of God's people must still be in Babylon. God's not going to tell us to call people out of Babylon if they're, they're not in Babylon, right? And in what religious bodies are the greater part of the followers of Christ now to be found? Well, without a doubt, in the various churches professing the Protestant faith. You know, you look it up. I looked up estimates. This is from 2010. I couldn't find any, you know, um, that were closer to our time. That's five years ago. But uh, estimates from 2010 put worldwide Protestant membership at roughly 1.9 billion people, while Catholic membership worldwide is around 68 million. The daughters of this mother thus represent the various religious bodies that constitute apostate. That mean, means they're false, they're, they're falling away, traitorous Protestantism. That's what it's referring to. The rejection of the first angel's message, specifically the judgment, by the professed Protestant churches in 1844 is what brought the second angel's message that was proclaiming their fall. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And like I said before, a rejection of the first angel's message means a rejection of them all because they accompany each other, see. When the second angel come, came and made the call, Babylon has fallen, it didn't mean that the first angel's ministry was over with. No. That ministry is still going on to this day. 
We're not just called to give the third angel's message, we're called to give the three angels' messages, you see. It's still going on. Question number 12. Is it, is it making sense? Good, good. Question number 12. What does fornication symbolize? Well, we read that in the second angel's message. Revelation 14.8 says, And there followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. What does fornication symbolize? Well, we look at Ezekiel 16 again. Verse 26 says, Thou hast also committed fornication with the Egyptians, thy neighbors, great of flesh, and has increased thy whoredoms to provoke me to anger. There we again we see whoredom and you know, even being a harlot. Look at verse 29. Thou hast moreover multiplied thy fornication in the land of Canaan unto Chaldee, and that thou wast not satisfied herewith. So we're seeing that Ezekiel is speaking about how Israel had run away to other nations in the world and other false gods and committed, quote, fornication. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 3, And uh, look at verse 6. We'll start there. It says, The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She is gone up upon every high mountain under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me. But she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly but feignedly, saith the Lord. Well, what's being talked about here? Is it actual fornication? No, this is, this is speaking of, of a spiritual battle, a spiritual warfare, and this is a spiritual symbol. What does fornication symbolize when we read the second angel's message? In Bible prophecy, friends, fornication is a figure of the illicit connection between the church and the world or between the church and the state. When, it, when he says that this church committed fornication, it means that it's making a, a connection with worldliness or with a, a state and not with God. Okay? Um, idolatry. Idolatry, in essence, is spiritual adultery. You, you've made a commitment of marriage. Remember, we saw we made a commitment of marriage with God as we become His people. But if we fall away and we turn our backs to Him and we put our sights on some other false god, an idol, whatever it may be, we are committing spiritual adultery. See? We've become a whore. We've become a harlot. An adulterous wife as the people of God. 
The church should be married to her Lord. But when she seeks the support of the state, what she do? She leaves her lawful spouse. And this is what you see with the apostate church. What you see with Babylon is a connection of the church and the state. It's a church-state uh, um, amalgamation kind of a, a connection there. They don't call upon God. They, they rely upon the state, see, to do their bidding. And by her new connection here, the church then commits spiritual fornication. That's what it means. In the New Testament, language very similar is addressed to professed Christians who seek the friendship of the world above the favor of God. In James 4 and verse 4, James says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? What's he mean by that? He says, Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. What's he saying? Why does he say adulterer and adulteresses? Know ye not the friendship of the world is enmity with God? The context is that by connecting yourself to the world, you're committing adultery because you're supposed to be connected with God. The symbol being marriage. Okay? So in the second angel's message, when he says that... um, Excuse me. In the second angel's message, when he talks about fornication, what's being said is that they have they are they are making an illicit connection the church has made an illicit connection um, primarily with the world and by by making in essence you say when you connect to a state you are connecting to the world because that's what the, the that state that government represents is the world for that particular culture right and so second angel's message said, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So she's come together with the state and she's going to make the whole world come and fall under her lead, see, and commit fornication with her. In other words, making everybody else have an illicit connection, specifically God's people, but all the world, to make an illicit connection with the world or with her. Become the harlot, see. Which leads to um, question 13. Why has Babylon fallen? Because her unbiblical connection with the world and its leaders. That's why. She's committed fornication. She's, she's no longer uh, behaving as if she is totally devoted and married to God. She's turned her back on God and is totally married in essence has that connection as if she was married, the married to the world and to the state. And this cup of intoxication, which Babylon presents to the world, represents, uh, it represents the false doctrines which she has accepted as the result of her unlawful connection with the great ones of the earth. And, you know, you go back and you, you look at history and you see, you know, the, after the apostles had passed away, and Paul warned about this, that there would be a falling away first, and then that man of sin would be revealed. What you see is that the church then starting to bring in the pagan elements. And they looked at this, uh, and maybe some of them, I mean, I can't judge a person's motives or heart, 
But maybe some of them thought this was a good thing. We're going to bring these pagans in, um, and we're going to we're going to evangelize them. See, and but in the process of evangelizing, what they were doing was they were lowering the standards. They were lowering God's standards for membership and becoming married. Those vows you take of marriage to become a member of God's church, a member of his faithful. And so there was a, a compromise, see, as they, they brought these, Pavel, these, these pagan and Babylonian and, and elements. They began in Babylon, and you can see elements of it in, in each one of those kingdoms that we studied in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 have been brought into the church. And, and these were doctrines, see. It changed the true doctrines of God. And so you had false doctrines mixing with the true doctrines. And what, what is the definition of Babylon? What? Is it a mixing of truth with error? To confuse by mixing, right? And so friendship with the world corrupts her faith, and in her turn, she exerts a, a corrupting influence upon the world by teaching doctrines which are opposed to the plainest statements and truths of the Word of God. The drinking of the wine of Babylon is a figure describing the acceptance of false teachings and policies of Babylon by all the nations. And let me share with you three prominent false teachings that are held by both the Catholic Church and the vast majority of Protestant churches. And these go contrary to the Word of God. And it only takes one of a number of false teachings to qualify a particular church as a daughter to the harlot, friends. Here are three of the top ones. The doctrine of the natural immortality of the soul. This has opened the way for modern spiritualism. And besides the Roman Catholic errors of purgatory, prayers for the dead, invocation of saints, Marian worship, and on and on, which have sprung from this source, it has led many Protestants to deny, and this is just remarkable to me, they deny the resurrection and the judgment. And friends, when you deny the judgment, what are you actually doing? You're rejecting the first angel's message, aren't you? And when you reject the first angel's message... By default, you're rejecting the second and third, or you will, because they accompany the first. Another one, a second one that's, that you see in most all of Protestantism, this belief of an eternal torment in hell. This false doctrine also springs forth from the false teaching of the natural immortality of the soul which was the first one I talked about. It teaches that the soul of an unrepentant person goes directly to an eternally burning hellfire upon their death to be tortured for all eternity for their sins. And this error paints God, though, as an unmerciful tyrant punishing sinners for all eternity instead of a just God of love and mercy. And we'll, we're going to study more about what the Bible has to say about hell the next time we get together, friends. And the third, third one is... Sunday sacredness, that Sunday is the Lord's day. And this is probably the most dangerous of all the errors being taught, really. It is the Catholic Church, you see, that claims the authority to change the law of God, especially declaring that the Sabbath of the fourth commandment has been changed from the seventh day to the first day of the week, or Sunday. 
And Protestantism follows Rome's lead in holding the first day sacred while trampling upon God's true Sabbath, the seventh day, known today as Saturday. In their own words, friends, Father Enright, he says this, the Bible says, remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day? The Catholic Church says, no. By my divine power, I abolish the Sabbath day and command you to keep the first day of the week. And lo, the entire civilized world bows down in reverent obedience to the command of the Holy Catholic Church. Can anyone deny that, really? Any honest person? Isn't that what's happened? Don't we see that all around the world? That's right, we do, don't we? This is from uh, the Signs of the Times, November 14, 1895. Quote, The man of sin thinks himself able to change the times and the laws of God, and the Protestant world have accepted the authority of the papal power, and in so doing have apostatized from God. All nations have been made drunk by partaking of the wine of Babylon, by accepting the presumptuous work of the man of sin, who has tampered with the law of God and thought to change the precepts of Jehovah. But has he really changed? And we studied this in our, our Bible study, you remember, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 verse 25 where it talks about this. We got into, in, into more depth. He thinks to change God's times and laws. But he hasn't really done it, right? Exactly. Question 14. Are the nations forced to drink the wine of Babylon? Let's look at uh, the second angel's message again. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, remember, that means Rome, because she made all nations drink. She did what? She made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So are the nations forced to drink the wine of Babylon? Yes. What happens if you don't? You're going to receive the mark of the beast. See? The great sin charged against Babylon is that she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath for fornication. And, and let me tell you, what is meant by the phrase made all nations drink? That means coercion. Let me, let me ask you, does God coerce anyone's conscience? You can't find an instance anywhere. God does not force the will, does he? Who does? Satan does. He tempts to, right? So coercion is meant by the phrase made all nations drink. He's going to try to force the nations to do this. And so religious elements will bring pressure to bear upon the state to enforce their decrees. And this has been the policy of papal Rome, friends, in its entire history. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed at all. And as we learned in Revelation 13, the substitution of human laws for the laws of God and, and the enforcement of religious decrees by the state will become universal and be enforced by the United States. Remember, that was that two-horned beast, Revelation 13, that second beast. And those who refuse to drink the wine, it says they're going to receive the mark of the beast. Okay, And part of that wine is Sunday sacredness. See? which Rome says is her mark. They made a change of the Sabbath, and they say that's a mark of their, their power, a mark of their authority. But 
But wrath is not Babylon's object, though, friends, in offering the wine to these various nations. She contends that drinking of her wine is going to bring peace. There's going to be an incredible peace movement. See? It's going to bring peace to the nations. You got all these national natural disasters and we got all these fightings and everything going on and and it's because you guys are worshiping on the wrong day and we need to come under the umbrella of Babylon here and begin to keep a family day we need to get back to the family and we need to we need to be in church on the Lord's day and that's going to bring, bring peace to the earth Jesus will bring peace then to the earth The reality is, friends, that the drinking of that wine brings down on men the wrath of God instead of peace to the nations. So we close up here. Let me share this. This is a manuscript release, volume 1, number 65. She says, Those who keep God's commandments, those who live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, compose the church of the living God. Those who choose to follow Antichrist are subjects of the great apostate. Ranged under the banner of Satan, they break God's law and lead others to break it. They endeavor so to frame the laws of nations that men shall show their loyalty to earthly governments by trampling upon the laws of God's kingdom. That's that Spiritual fornication, see? They've changed their, their they, they, they've turned their back on, the church has turned their back on that marriage vow they made with God by becoming His. And they align themselves with the earthly government and the church, the world church. Have you heard that? World church before? As she says, they endeavor so to frame the laws of nations that men shall show their loyalty to earthly governments by trampling upon the laws of God's kingdom. So you've got to keep Sunday and what happens when you worship God on Sunday and they try to force you to do work on God's holy Sabbath, the seventh day. You break God's law, see. That'll show who's loyal to the government, Right? She goes on, she says, men in authority will enact laws controlling the conscience after the example of the papacy. Babylon will make all nations drink of the wine of the wrath for fornication. Every nation will be involved. It's incredible, isn't it? The friends were right at that doorstep. Right at that doorstep. Can you see it? What have we learned from the first and second angel's message. Let's do a quick review. The first angel. First, we learn that this is not a literal angel, but a but a message. In the first angel, it's a worldwide message, right? Second, this message consists of the perpetual good news of salvation, that through Christ's merits, we can reflect the image of God perfectly in our life here and for eternity. The third thing, this first angel's message tells us the time of the Messiah's first advent. We can get into the prophecy and, and discover that when we talk about the judgment. Fourth thing, that his true church, the body of Christ, will be giving this message to every nation, tongue, and people. Fifth thing we learned was that this message calls people to glorify God in body and in spirit. 
So to follow God's health laws is an integral part of this message. A sixth thing we learn is that this message proclaims that there is a judgment that all must face on an individual basis before God. And the seventh thing we learn is that this message tells us that the time of the judgment has opened, bringing to an end the longest time prophecy of the Bible. That's Daniel 8 verse 14. And any further prophecies based upon definite time. And we learned that on October 22nd, 1844, that great court from which there is no appeal convened in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. What have we learned from the second angel? Well, the second angel, first thing we, we learned was the second message accompanies the first one. It doesn't end the first angel's message. It accompanies it. The second thing, the second message was not originally given with a loud voice like the first and third, but will be repeated with a mighty voice in the near future. A third thing, Babylon spoken of is not the literal city or nation built by Nimrod or the one ruled by Nebuchadnezzar. The literal city of Babylon no longer exists and will never be rebuilt. Remember we read it will be like Sodom as God overran Sodom and Gomorrah. A fourth thing, Babylon is symbolic of a harlot uh, church from Rome. A mother harlot who has harlot daughters. That means churches, offsprings, churches that are connected to it. A fifth thing we've learned is that papal Rome is the mother harlot spoken of and apostate Protestant churches are her harlot daughters as they hold to the mother's false doctrines. Sixth thing that we've learned, papal Rome fell centuries before the time of the second angel, angel's message. So the message Babylon is fallen is fallen describes the rejection of the first angel's message by apostate Protestant churches. And the seventh thing we learned was that papal Rome and her daughters, those apostate Protestant churches, will work together with the state to enforce their religious decrees. That's the second angel's message. And so, friends, it's clear that this prophecy of the fall of Babylon finds its last day fulfillment in the departure of Protestantism uh, at large from the purity and simplicity of the Gospels given by the first angel's message. They have rejected the first angel's message, see. This message was first preached by the Advent movement uh, in the summer of 1844, we found, and was applied to the churches that rejected the first angel's message concerning the judgment. And friends, let me tell you, you start to talk about the judgment and the time of the judgment with a lot of the Protestant churches and they think you're nuts. They, they don't know how to study the Bible for the most part. They just don't. It's sad. The message will have increasing relevance as the end draws near and will meet its complete fulfillment with the union of the various religious elements under the leadership of Satan, which we know is the dragon, Revelation 12 tells us, who gives his power to the beast. The third angel's message, friends, gives clarity to the final conflict as we'll see in our next lesson, next time we get together. And I want to ask before we close up, is it, is it your desire to follow the true God and obey his commandments, thus rejecting the wine of Babylon? We see a show of hands. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer together. Please bow your heads with me.
Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for this this incredible uh, news and prophecy that we've learned. Um, it can be a scary thing to think about, and to, especially when we see the signs all around us. And, and Father, we need your help. We need your protection. We need your guidance. And so we give, you, give ourselves and our hearts to you today. We pray that you'll forgive us where we've sinned. Help us to have clear, uh, a clear sight, be able to discern the, not only the signs, but the truth of your word. And Father, give us the courage to stand and in a loving way share this message with those who don't know. We thank you so much for Jesus and for your undying love towards us. We pray that you will continue to bless us because we need your blessings, not because we're worthy, oh, but because Jesus is, Father. And we pray this in his name. Amen.